There we go. And good morning to Barb. I see her on here. I think she's on her phone. Oof, that was itchy. You're on the edge of a sneeze. You're cold? There it is. Thank you. I was waiting for that one. All right. We are in the bowls of wrath. I believe, are we on the third or fourth? I think we did the third. We're on the fourth. We're on the fourth. Bowl. And this, this, actually we're going to do just this, just two verses. We'll, do, we'll go bowl by bowl. You're going to see how we have, and we'll actually today we'll talk about how this was of course, relevant to the audience at the time it was written, but we're going to see how it is always relevant and how it's relevant for us today. Even if we don't know when the end actually comes, what Revelation is teaching us, what Scripture always teaches us is how to see the situation we're in without being what? D word. Deceived. Without being deceived and what to do about it. So you're going to see that from the very beginning today. Of this is actually very relevant to every time, including especially our own. So who would read for us verses eight and nine, the fourth bowl? Okay. Thank you, Randy. The fourth angel poured his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch them with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, but they cursed the name of God, who had authority over these plagues. And they did not repent and give him glory. Okay. So the first question I want to ask is forget the individual circumstance, forget the specifics. Look at it from a general point of view and what what is happening and what's the response to it. In other words, forget the fact that it's fire for a minute. We'll get to fire, but um, what's happening, and what's the response? Well, it's, it par parallels one of the plagues where the, the water turns to blood. Yeah, yeah, we heard that a few a few bowls ago. And this one again, it's it's heat, but so it's a plague. Where's the plague coming from? <clears throat> well, the angel poured something into the, into the, the river. Okay. The water. Wait, which verse are you on? Are you on verse oh, eight? Four. Go to verse eight. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. Um, oh. Yeah, you're good. Well, I thought we had we're starting with. Sorry, the fourth bowl. Yeah. <laughs> I okay. should have said the fourth bowl right. before the verse. So. Um, okay, so it's happening. This plague is going to happen on the sun, but again, remember where it's coming from. This is the angel, and if you go back to where all these these bowls started, it was a voice from the temple that was going to send the angels out with the bowls of wrath. Okay? So this is happening by the direction of God. Okay? They're suffering. And what's their reaction? They cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. Good question. Why not? Why not? Even if you were a believer, it'd be kind of hot. It's, it, it's a test everything to give God glory for all these plagues. 
Why is it a test? It's, it's like a test that um, we remain faithful and, you know, and, and continue to believe in God. It's not, it's to strengthen us and to, and to, to show um, an example for the, all the people that don't believe. I don't know. That's... Okay. Other ideas. Why is it, we have to understand why this is a test and what, what are the reactions and why would we react in the way we would? So what what's what's difficult for believers? Doubt. In this in this situation, the the angel pours the bowl in the sun and it scorches scorches men with fire. We don't know. Is it just the bad people? We don't know. It's scorching men. If if the faithful, what's the temptation? <laughs> Why? The angel or whatever that is, I'm hearing. I mean, you unplug Zoom or no? I will. I just thought it would be nice for them to see. Don't you like that psychedelic? It's Hello! Like end time. Come on. <laughs> it's good for dramatic effect. Recording, though, it sounds terrible, terrible. Yeah. <laughs> So if, if, if you are faithful to God, and, then that and this happens, what's, and that, and that happens to me, what's the temptation? Not to believe Why? Because he's letting time come to me. Okay. And so whose authority, how are you ranking the authority that you're going to live under? God did this. I don't like it. Tempted to be mad at God for it. Therefore, where's the rank? Who, who's the ultimate authority if you decide to do that? God. Right. But that would be our temptation. It would be a temptation. It is our temptation, let's be honest. Coronavirus, fires, all this stuff going on. Now if you're in Houston, you can't drink the water because there's some microbe. Why is God doing this? Okay, and so we, if you ask the question and you keep it a question, you keep the pecking order. God is still God, and you're below him. And while it may be tempting to supersede his authority, if we choose the right path, humility, we say, God, we trust in you. We obey you, your God, we're not. Okay, so we can understand, I, I want to talk this from a, from a point of view of faith. Even for faithful people, it's difficult. Because somebody asks the question, why would they do that, right? Now, if you're not faithful... What are your options? Be out on your own. But in terms of how you respond to God, what are your options if... Do they come to less awareness of God? Are they less aware of God because of what's happening? They are less aware. Look at verse 9. I always trick you when I ask you questions of the text. Do you think I'm asking about something else? What's that? <laughs> I trick you when I ask you questions it's about. And then we're, you're, you're asking me in particular. No. Everybody. And then we're scorched with great heat and rain, but they can't And they cursed the name of God. And they did not repent. Okay. So were they less believing in God, not trusting? No, they know he's around, but they're not, they're not okay. believing in him. 
So now they're more aware of, of his, the reality of who God is, right? And whether, now what are the options? Now that they're more aware, what are their options? What are their options? That's one. To accept it or to reject it. Okay. So in other words, once they're more aware of his reality, now they're in the same position that we're in. Lots of options. I could get mad at God, put him below me and judge him. Instead of letting me be under his judgment, I, I judge him and say, why is he doing this? He shouldn't do this. So in other words, we're all in the same situation. And what the uncovering, remember the book is the apocalypse, the uncovering is everything's going to become known who God is. And some people are going to react very well to it. And a lot of people, both so-called believing people and non-believing people are going to do what in the world sense is a smart thing to do. What kind of God would do this? Blah, blah, blah. The smart people are going to go, God, you're God. This is difficult, but I trust you. And so here, what, what the what thing I wanted to draw out is that we can, it could seem like, how stupid can they be? God is the one whose power they're under, and yet they're cursing his name. But we can understand that because we are also tempted to the same thing. Right. No. Not cursed. Good question. But could it possibly be like the three young youths in the fire because they were faithful to God? He protected them from from harm, even though this terrible thing was happening. And so the, the people that don't believe in God or decide to curse God are the ones that are really going to feel the brunt of th this this plague, this curse. Right, because according to them, did they know that God was going to preserve them from the fire before they got thrown in? No. No. Mm -hmm. Did it matter to them if they were going to be preserved from the fire? No. no. In other words, if you are faithful, the fire, the, the punishment, and that's a great example because this is fire, the suffering is irrelevant. What is relevant? What's the only thing relevant according to Revelation? Not losing faith. In God. In God. Because Revelation, remember, is all about everyone has faith. The only question is, is in whom do you have it? And at the time it's written, John's writing this in the middle of the Roman Empire. Everyone's got faith in Rome. I mean, Rome is Rome. And we're going to learn, you're going to see in a couple of verses about how this is even predict the end of Rome. But forget that, talking about our time, that's always going to be the choice. Who, in whom do we put our trust? And that's why the suffering that we've seen in this verse and throughout, Revelation is saying to you, that's irrelevant. And if you put your attention on that, you're going to be pushed in the wrong direction. You're going to be deceived. Now, is it easy to be deceived? Sure. Very easy to be deceived. That's why we wrote a book about it. <laughs> Don't be deceived. So it's not as if people that get deceived are somehow the exclusion or the, the, un, un, the, the exception. Almost everyone's going to be deceived. Why? Because our desire to be safe in earthly human terms is very strong. Right? God implanted us this idea of survival. That's a good thing. It's a gift from God. But when we define that as survival in this world, then we end up being 
deceived because there's a world beyond the world that we can see. Okay, so the key thing here is that suffering is coming and uh, they curse the name of God who had power over these plagues and they did not repent and give him glory. That's why they cursed God. There were the, that's their two choices. And yeah, we question God and we have to be careful about it. It's okay to question on our way to deeper faith. When we stay in questioning, now we're sort of on that which way are we going to fall? Because questioning is already the openness to perhaps being deceived and putting our trust in something besides God. How do we do that? How do we do? Well, beyond the questioning on the road to deeper faith, how do we do that? Well, according to Revelation, you decide in whom you're going to put your trust. It's a decision. You can put your trust in an earthly power whether that's a government or a political figure or your own survival, whatever it is that you put as, that's number one. Or you decide, according to Revelation, to do what the world will not recognize as a smart thing to do. And you put your trust in the one who what? Who's in heaven, who is a lamb and yet was wounded with a mortal wound but survived, lived. It's a decision. But I, I'm not even talking about putting my faith in an earthly power, or I'm just talking about building that faith, even though we're questioning all the time. Mm -hmm. And isn't that a human thing to do? We do question. It's a human thing in the sense that it's uh, we God gave us the ability to decide for ourselves. He gave us freedom. Yeah, so in verses 8 and 9, who are the two options of whom you could fear? You could fear God, and you could say, I'm going to fear in the sense of respect, seek to honor, obey, all that. Or I could fear for my own safety and then curse God because I'm suffering. Not curse, but does he get upset when we, we are faithless or, or we become afraid or we... But when we don't doubt, we don't fear. Fear and doubt are, are two halves of the same coin. I don't look at it that way. I don't doubt that he's there. I don't <laughs> then what's there to be afraid of? If I... Nothing. <laughs> That's the answer. <laughs> yeah, and then it's just a question of do we believe it, not do we feel it, do we place our trust? That's why the fear may not go away, but the, it's a fear that says, I'm afraid, but I'm trusting. Not I'm afraid, and therefore I'm not sure what I'm going to do. I'm afraid, but I trust. Even if I'm afraid, if, even if I'm, afraid I'm never going to deny God or blaspheme God. I'm just going to say, please help me, but help me quicker than now and not let, you know, it, when I'm in the midst of a, a situation. Right. And we've talked about the situations. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
It's just my reaction, and I don't think I'm the only person who no. does react that way. No, but the question is, what is our reaction? We might take a little time to get there. That's it. I take but if we take too much time, that's actually a sign of our doubt. Well, then, then this is something that I find threatening or... That's the key. We're going to find lots of things threatening. This is very threatening. An angel pouring God's wrath on the sun and the sun scorching them with fire. Threatening. And the goal is to say, don't, no matter what looks threatening, if you don't put your trust in God, the way, at some point you end up cursing him. Now, you may not get there quickly, but questioning him can be that beginning towards that. What's that, Alan? If you don't trust in God, why would you even curse or blasphemy him? I mean, what, what is the purpose of that? If you don't right. trust in him, you're not believing in him, why would, you, why would they go there? Well, actually, this is the funny thing, is they curse the name of God. In other words, he becomes apparent to them. But this is where, where you can see, you know, when we often talk of belief in God, what we often mean is that we believe he exists. And throughout the Gospels, you hear these examples of where believing God exists, that's next to nothing. Even the demons are the ones that always end up saying he's there. And Jesus, like, silences them. Don't tell everybody because he doesn't want them to believe just because the demon said so or whatever. So believing he exists, most people think that's the issue. If that was the issue in verses 8 and 9, We'd say, oh, well, they, they cursed their God. Oh, they believed he's there, so they believed in God. No. Believing God is not believing he exists. Believing in God is that trust in God. Who are you aligned with? Who are you loyal to? Who do you trust even when you're afraid and threatened and all the rest? And that's it. When you're afraid, you do. And, and if you, your trust does grow and your faith does grow, but my first reaction is... And mm -hmm. then I go, please, God, help me. That's what I do. And then do you, the goal would be for all of us, move to, if we're even if we're still afraid, saying, no matter what happens, God, you're in charge. I trust you. That's the key. Because if not, at some point, we're holding back that trust in God. So the question is, who are we trusting? Is it ourselves? Is it our safety? Who is it? We don't know. All of this is different. The point is, trust in God says, no matter what I suffer, I'm under you, and that's okay for me. Whereas here, what are the people doing? They're cursed name of God who had the power over the plagues. And that's where we, there really isn't a no man's land. We, we think there is. We think there's a, well, I'm just going gonna, gonna to struggle with this, and, and struggle is fine, but we're either moving in one direction or the other. We're not really. Yes. Thank you. Going back to chapter two of Revelation. Yeah, and what he's saying to us is at these moments, this is intense, high pressure. And what he's trying to, to show us is you could do what the people, a lot of people are going to do. They're going to curse God. The very one who's sending this, they're going to curse him. How stupid can you be? But it's not stupidity. It's, what is it? It's, uh, it's stubbornness, lack of repentance, lack of hum humility before God. They don't give him glory. So the goal is, is we're going to move one or the other. It's, you want to move towards God? Keep going towards that. Even if we can't admit to our faithlessness, understand where we need to go. 
Understand that I need to get to the place where it doesn't matter what happens to me. I trust God. Any of the thought? Me, I'm just trying to absorb it all. I'm catching up. <laughs> That's all right. But, you know, I, I try to personalize all of these things you're saying. Yeah. And my own life. Am I? Can you all hear? Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm asking myself while you're saying these things. Yes. If I only turn to God when I'm in trouble, or if I turn to God with thanks and humility for the good things, um, if I question God when I see things that aren't going right. Um, so yeah, I'm following you. But it's I'm, challenging, I'm, isn't it? I'm, I'm measuring my own abilities or my own failures. We should. That's exactly what, this is not written as a theological book for academics. <laughs> this is a letter to Christians who are all like you being tempted with really the question is who's the savior? And it's always going to be one way or another, me or God. Well, yeah. And personally, I know it's God, but a lot of times I, you know, I don't um, necessarily put everything on him. I, I trust my own judgment. And I'm getting further away from that as I get older. But I, you know, I'm 62. It's old habit. Yep. You're used to depending on yourself and making your own decisions based on your own desires. And what, what it makes but he wants you to do that, doesn't he? He wants you yeah. to make your own decision. Yeah, God wants, he's given us that ability and he's given us that choice, but we have to still do it based on his teachings, I think. So you say make your own choice. You don't mean the freedom. You mean the choice to choose the right thing. Both. Yeah. Yeah. Both. Yeah. Sometimes I wish we didn't have a choice. If we were just directed, life would be so much easier. Isn't it funny? The very thing we claim to value the most, we really dislike in a lot of regards. We don't want the responsibility. We don't want yeah. the effort it takes to choose and choose well. Like I'm retired now. I got tons of vital time. And I don't, you know, I'm trying to find some way to find something valuable to do with it. And it's, uh, it's not that easy. No. But. And so why is it, I asked before and I forgot the question. When you're young, what makes it easier to not rely on God? Maybe it's because decisions don't weigh as much for the results of the decisions. Mm -hmm. um, you, know, the, I, I, you have confidence in yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and so this happens on a personal level. It also happens on a national level or a global level. So a person can be confident in themselves because of their youth and their strength and their ability. So can a nation or an empire. And so can, because all these peoples that are receiving these plagues, the ones that struggle the most are the ones that have their strength that can even think about 
Am I going to trust you, God, or am I going to trust myself? We only trust ourselves if we see some kind of strength that says, well, I want to do it my way. If you have no ability to choose your way, you wouldn't choose it. It's when we put ourselves up on the pedestal of, I think I can handle this. Now, when you can't, when an angel pours his bowl of God's wrath on the sun, you're scorched. Now it would seem like, okay, let's flock to God. Let's throw ourselves at his feet of his mercy. And here, even now, people are going to go, I can't believe he's doing this and he's not my God. Curse you, God. There's many people curse God. I mean, it's like, you know if he's God, but that's how stubborn we get. And that's, that's the ultimate choice of, of revelation is who are you loyal to? Who are you obedient to? Who is the one you're going to serve? And if it's not the God, then you will, bless you, you will refuse even in the face of his power. That's not going to be enough. How many times have we said, if God would only show us his power, it would be so easy for me. Show me a miracle. Show me a sign. Right? Scripture had all through the Gospels. We say it all the time. Here's a sign. Here's God showing his power. Even in his wrath, which is, remember the context. We had the coming judge, the coming, it's getting close to the end, and now it's going to be the ultimate judgment. Now, when we think of judgment, we think of, okay, it's kind of neutral, lay out some facts, and the judge has to pick, right? In the case of judgment of these people, let's say, let's say okay, the next verse is about judgment, which it's not, we're going to get there. Is it hard to judge who was loyal to God and who wasn't based on verses 8 and 9? Would that be a hard case to call for a judge? Who said no? Why not, Maria? Well, it's obvious if they're not believers. Why is it obvious? Because <laughs> they they're not trusting. They're cursing, right. Right. So in the face of God being so evident and so obvious in his power who he is, they're still not going to say, I'm with you. Okay? So this shows us that judgment is not about people who didn't get a chance, wasn't really clear. It's about, it's clear. It's not like, well, they didn't really know. For all of us, it's going to be a matter of God, as, as Christ says, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. It's, it's, it, it's not like he's arbitrary, and we wonder, well, I wonder what God's going to do. We could all look at our own life and say, well, based on the witness of my life, this is what God's going to say. Um, let me read you a little bit of commentary here from Andrew Caesarea. Perhaps humankind will literally be burned by the fierce heat of the sun, while God in his goodness, quote, curbs them with bit and bridle who do not draw near to him, that's from the Psalms, so that they might look toward repentance. Some have fallen to such depths of evil that by the depravity of their minds, they will not turn to conversion, but rather to blasphemy. 
you can see there where the, the suffering is forcing a decision. And for some, it'll turn them towards God, or for some, it's going to turn them away based on their decision. The, the suffering won't. Their decision is going to do that. And that's why I think this is very applicable today. My, my feeling on this coronavirus, as bad as it's been, is look how much worse it would have to be for more people to turn to God. And you can see how in the face of it, some have, most have it. Right. And the more things that happen, fires and this and that, we're either more set in our anti-God attitudes or we're more faithful, more trusting, because in our view, we have to. We have no choice but to trust in God. And we've had, we've had the coronavirus and we've had forest fires in our country that have been the worst ones like ever. Right. And, and uh, it's as though, in, you know, their hearts are hardened. They don't see the truth. They o right. only talk about it in scientific format. Right. So, Father, do you think all these catastrophes, plagues, fires, floods, hurricanes, do you think these things are happening so that we are forced to make a choice? Do you think God's doing this? So that we make a choice either to have a stronger faith in him and reliance on him or to reject him? He's not doing it in order for that to happen. Through those things, we're making our choices. Through those things. Through, so in, in every circumstance of life, God is saying to us, not here it is, make your choice. Because we're the ones that that brought on all of this either because of our own messing up of the world or because um i think uh, as yeah, andrew sees just said sometimes those are things that god can use although you know as as a way to spark us towards repentance okay. so they're not by um what's the word they're not by their nature good or bad they're by nature difficult and by our choice they can be good or bad so the same fire of god coming down in his wrath that turns some people to curse god turns others towards repentance so in a sense why he's doing it is really although we always go there like why is this happening why 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 the real question is what what are we going to do about it because we can't answer the question why, we will answer the question what. We will always answer the question, what am I going to do about this? And it's either that answer is either going to take us towards God, being more loyal, more obedient, more trusting, or farther. It's, it's, it's like, yeah, we're given a choice. remember what was in the hand of the figure in chapter one? He had a sword, right? What kind of sword? A two-edged. What's a two-edged sword do? It cuts both ways. Cuts both ways. You know, when we say um, in the liturgy, among the first, you mindful of our Father, Metropolitan Joseph, Bishop Anthony. Um, and the last part of it, we pray, is that he would rightly divide the word of thy truth. 
Isn't that a weird sentence? The way we, in English, it doesn't make much sense. Divide the truth. Any, any ideas what that means? Rightly dividing the word of thy truth. Father, my understanding of that is the fact that rightly dividing the word of truth is pulling the absolute essential truths and uh, uh, distributing the truths, dividing the truth like Jesus divided the loaves and the fish to provide sustenance for the people. The word is taken and divided and broken down and given for our benefit and done so in such a way that it is truthful. And how does division work in that sense? Or how does, what are you dividing? What from what? Uh, in the passage, um, you're dividing the, the truth from that which is deceitful. Exactly. Alan, did you want to add to that? Uh, no, I'm good. So if you ever see uh, Greek or Arab men after the women have taken the meat from lamb to go make things, right? What do the men do? The men take all the scraps and they get their knives out and they cut every little piece of meat off of that, which they'll use to scramble with eggs or whatever. It's that precision of saying this gets thrown away, this gets kept. Hmm. So when the bishop divides the word of truth, what he's saying is there's a lot of confusion, there's a lot of deception, and the word of God, that sharp two-edged sword, is going to divide in a very clean way, this is truth, this is not. And why does it need to be divided? Because the world doesn't always recognize the division. To bring it closer to Revelation, the Antichrist, whose number was 666, one digit off of 777, the perfect number, why is six? It looks so good. It's so close to what looks to be right. And yet it's the opposite. It's, it's, it's the against Christ. So it's not what's going to always appear evil and what's going to appear good. They're both going to appear to be good, but you got to have that very sharp sword to divide what really is good from what appears to be but isn't. And that's the challenge. That's, that's the challenge all of us face personally as we go through our own spiritual struggles. It's, okay, where precisely am I, I've got a cut between this aspect of my life and this because this is valuable and good and this is not. One more commentary here. This is interesting from Caesareus. These plagues from God do not strike them in the body, but in the soul. And therefore, they do not consider God, but progress toward greater evil, and for that reason, blaspheme God and persecute his saints. That, that goes back to the thing, uh, Deborah, I think you were saying that, you know, think about the three young men in the furnace. It's not the body that's ever really the issue, but we can be deceived in thinking it is. It's always a soul. That's, that's where the plague strike. All right, any questions on the fourth bowl? So keep that in mind, this idea of, of the two reactions, because that's what's really going to fold here, is we're going to see really obviously God giving everyone the chance to sort of state their allegiance. 
for or against God. All right, would somebody read the fifth bowl, which is verses 10 and 11? Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed to God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and did not repent of their deeds. Okay, so we had before the dragon and the beast. Um, on the one hand, those were images of deception from the devil, the dragon especially, and the beast who served the dragon, but who had earthly power. And so now this plague is coming against the throne of the beast, against that, that earthly throne of power. And what happens? What's the result? Well, what, what, what is the curse? What is, what is the plague? Darkness. Darkness. Where have we heard this before? In Egypt. Okay, again, the plagues of Egypt. That's the model for um, what we're going to see here as these bowls of wrath, the judgment of God coming out in, in, in wrath near the end, um, are going to mirror the Exodus. So keep, keep the context. Remember, this is the Bible. So this is the last book, right? Revelation. What's the first book? Genesis. Genesis. You're going to see how the whole story gets wrapped up. And it's a story from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, and it's getting wrapped up. So you're going to see a lot of this back and forth of this is what happened. And what was the purpose of the Exodus? What was the purpose of the plagues? To be delivered out of, of um, bondage. And what was the mechanism? How did the plagues deliver the people? Make them believe. It broke down. So God sends the plagues, and who who are the plagues against? Egypt, right? And who's the ruler of Egypt? The Pharaoh. What was God trying to do to Pharaoh? Let the people go. Moses kept going back. Let the people go. Do a plague. Pharaoh wouldn't agree. And what happened at every step along the way? What did the scripture? I don't remember what the scripture says. I think you said it. His heart was hardened. Pharaoh. Pharaoh. So there he is holding the people of of the Hebrews in bondage. What's that? Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Oh, that's great. One of my favorite movies. (laughs) Yes. In number 10. Yep. What's this nod their tongues? What's that got to do with the, the darkness because of the pain? The darkness, what, why are we coming up with tongues? What's the tongue mean? They're, they're biting their tongues in English. Here, I'll read you something. I'm going to read you later. I'll read it now. Um, where is it? Pouring the bowl on the throne of the beast signifies the pouring out of a great wrath upon the kingdom of the Antichrist. This kingdom is shown to be in darkness, that it is, it is bereft of the light of the Son of Righteousness. The gnawing of tongues reveals the intensity of the pain that those who have been struck, deceived by him, will have when they are struck by these plagues sent from God. They're so in anguish, they're biting their tongues. What is the kingdom that um, was in darkness? I mean, how much of the 
earth or the universe was in darkness. So this is one of the interesting things about Revelation. If you read it in the first century and it was written, you would make a you'd make a very, yeah. very difficult to read it not against Rome. I mean, it's it just plays out perfectly. This is Rome. Um, the seven heads, the seven hills of Rome, um, the power, especially when we get to chapter 17, you're going to see how this is very clearly, this is the first century, this is Rome, who we're going to hear about um, that the, um, the harlot sits on the throne. We'll get to that, uh, maybe not today, but um, so in, in the first century, this is Rome, right? Who might this be in the 20th century? Or 21st century. I keep forgetting we're only 20 years into it. <laughs> I don't think it would be United States. It could be a government, right? I doubt it. I mean, it, it's um, Amazon. <laughs> it could be, yeah, it could be a, yeah, a corporation. <laughs> what is it in our day and age that would tempt us with independence from God? Because that's always, always going to be the contradiction is, do you trust God? Do you trust one who gives you the power so you don't need God anymore? Science. Need money. Science in what sense? Uh, determining, establishing the truth of the universe. Yeah, but what does science do specifically that we would have a problem with? We have no problem with truth. We have no problem with knowledge. They deny anything. It, it uh, potentially could um, be against God's God. Yeah. I mean, the science in its purest form, well, I shouldn't say purest, in its modern form, has the presupposition that we're going to ignore the divine. Now, that seems normal for us in, in, the, in the modern age. Science began as an effort of the Christians to see the hand of God in the natural world. That was what science was. There wasn't this uh, secular versus religious. It was in, under the, the guise of God as the creator. Let's understand God by looking at his creation. And still I would say there are Christian scientists, not in that Christian science <laughs> weird church thing, but scientists that are Christians, <laughs> Um, that still have that attitude. They want to they explore the created world just like we explore the scriptures. They're looking for the hand of God at work in the creation. But science, is, as it's sort of developed, really looks down on that. In fact, they'll be mocked, and they'll say, there's no proof for God, therefore you don't acknowledge God. So yeah, I would agree with you, Alan. Science in, in the idea of we're going to explain the God, explain the world, and we don't need God to do that. You're irrelevant, God. We don't need you. We understand it without you. Money. Why money? Why might money be the beast? Yeah, I would say all of us are tempted to this. Money really is where our power is in today's world. Um, so money is your ability to choose. You can choose how you live, how comfortable you are, 
Um, choose your pleasure, choose your comfort, choose your protection, choose your security. Now, are we actually secure if we have money? No, but you can have the illusion. You could be deceived into thinking you're safe. You got enough money, you got the right security system, you live in the right neighborhood, you got the right gun, you got the right car, and you think you're safe till a virus comes around and says, you know, we're all... Those that don't have money want it, and those that have it want more of it. Sometimes, because again, it's, it's a deception. It, you want more of it, whether you have a little, you have a lot, you want more of it if you're deceived into thinking that that is going to be your power, which power is what? What's that? Power or comfort, there's a difference. Yeah, and money can get you seemingly both. Does it really give you either? Seems like it. Respect to you, even you know whether you did anything or not. Can it really bring you respect? It appears to be. Yeah. But then they act a certain way in front of you, and then you turn your back, you walk out of the room, and. Yeah. Even comfort. Can can it get you a nice house and a nice fur? Yeah. But if that if it was really going to bring you comfort, why is it that happiness does not go up with income level? Why is it that the suicide rate actually goes up in higher income levels? So how comfortable are they? Right, but it can you can be deceived into thinking they are. Mm -hmm. We can be deceived in thinking if we have money, we have power until somebody breaks in our house and, and kills us or somebody plows into us on the highway or you catch a virus. It's, again, it's all, this is what could, we think we're good. On our own, we're fine. We think we have comfort, we think we have power. Meanwhile, it's all a deception, it's all a lie. We're, who was more powerful, King Nebuchadnezzar or the three youths. Now, by youths, by understand they were probably young teenagers, maybe even preteens. Who was more powerful? But they were both. Both sets were were powerful until Nebuchadnezzar's power was shown to fail when the when the when the boys were not damaged. He was very powerful and, and had control over everything that he wanted until, until he failed in killing them. So was he really powerful? In the end, no. Yeah. Right. But he sure looks to be, mm -hmm. right? We read, we read that very long passage on, on Holy Saturday morning um, where they built a statue and it had bronze and gold and this and that and all the different instruments that were played and all the different servants that were lined up and the kings and the satyrs and the da 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 da, da and they played the da, da da it goes on and on and on it has the illusion or at least the image which we think is illusion obviously of power and here he is with these three kids and he can't even kill them with a furnace that kills the soldier that puts the guys in the furnace so again there's always going to be 
Revelation is going to keep hammering us beginning to end. It looks like this. It's really this. You want to hold to what it looks like? Okay, you're free. I made you free. But all, especially with these seven bowls, what we're being shown one, not final time, but one towards the end time, you can look at this one of two very different ways, and they are very different in reality. But what reality? The scriptures. Not in what you see with your physical eyes. That's going to make you deceived. Don't be deceived, what he keeps telling us. You're talking about man-made things, like the furnace or the money or whatever. None of that is powerful. It's all man-made. Right. So... But that's what we typically think has power, what's man-made. Don't you think God's creation, nature, uh, his power, even just growing a little flower, that's power. Right. Right. Yep. Exactly. All right. Thoughts or questions on that? All right. Now we're going to solve a great mystery that has been raging for almost 100 years, maybe 100 years now. And we're going to solve it in like four seconds. <laughs> Somebody read for us verses 12 to 16. The sixth angel poured his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up in order to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw three foul spirits like frogs coming from the mouth of the dragon, from the mouth of the beast, and from the mouth of the false prophet. These are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to, king, to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of the Almighty. How far did you want me to go? Uh, two more. Okay. See, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and is clothed not going about naked and exposed to shame. And they assembled him at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Or Armageddon. Armageddon. Yeah, there it is. Armageddon. Okay. okay, so it's one more bowl. These are bowls of what? God's wrath. God's wrath coming at the end, coming as the judgment. And again, you're going to see how God doesn't have to do much in his judgment. He's putting up the choice, and they're making their choices. Okay? And he poured his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. All right. If uh, I don't have a map in front of us, but you think about the Mediterranean world. Where is, where is the river Euphrates? What's the modern, the modern uh, country that has the river Euphrates? You have a map, look in your um, Bibles in the back. Syria? No, close. Iraq. Iraq. Iraq yeah. Okay. So you're talking east of the Mediterranean, right? And in the first century, who who's west of the of <laughs> Iraq? What what empire are we talking about? West. That's the Roman Empire, right? Think of that Mediterranean basin all around. Italy, all around there, Middle East, along the coast, okay? Who's on the other side? Of the river. Persian? The 
Persians, pretty much everybody from the Persians on, right? All those Asiatic tribes. Um, now, this is written from the perspective of the Mediterranean. John is in on the island of Patmos, which is off the coast of modern day Turkey. Um, so they're not thinking north and south, you know, far. But the idea is that when this water dries up, what's the result? Look at verse 12. It's a path. They made a, a dry path like they did for the Egyptians or the, for the, the Hebrews to cross out of Egypt. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, but it's actually the reverse of that, right? Right. In 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 when God divided the Red Sea, it was so that the Egyptian or the Israelites could escape, and the Egyptians got killed. Now here is it being dried up in the opposite. The opposing forces are going to be able to come in from the east. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then we see issuing from the mouth of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, three foul spirits like frogs. Where have we heard frogs before? Plagues, okay. Um, but he tells us exactly what they are. They're not frogs. They are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. There's a lot in that sentence. Let's unpack it. So the spirits are going out. They're performing signs. In front of or with whom? The kings. The kings of the whole world. And what's their goal? To organize them for battle. Okay, I'm going to stop you there for a second. To organize them for In other words, so we've seen what God has been orchestrating. Now we're going to see what the beast, what the demon, the, dread, the, the devil's been orchestrating. He's going to get all these nations to come together for battle only. We know whose day it is, and whose day is it? The day of the God Almighty. And then you have this next verse, verse 15. In my, um, my translation, it's in parentheses. Same here. Yours is in red, okay? Does that mean Christ is speaking? Yeah, so in, in those that have red letter edition Bibles, is Christ speaking. But mine has parentheses. Why would it be in parentheses? Because it's not written that way. This is the translator, the, the, the writer is putting it in there. It's like, how do you, I mean, what do parentheses do? As grammatic, think grammatically for a second. Information. Yeah, it's like, this isn't, you have to mark this off. A parentheses says, understand that we're going to switch a little bit here, but I'm adding to, in other words, it doesn't fit, but it fits. Because all of a sudden, you're going to have the voice of, 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 actually doesn't identify it, we have a voice speaking, Lo, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is he who is awake, keeping his garments that they may not go naked and be seen exposed. How is that connected to what came before that? What do you mean, what came before that? The verses, like verse 13 and 14. So in 13 and 14, you've got the, the beast, the false prophet, and the dragon. Okay, so this is 
God's rebuttal to that? See, I am coming. Okay, yeah, he, so he's saying, but he's coming like a thief. How does the thief come? Sneaky, Sneaky not seen, not obvious, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, right okay, and blessed is he who is prepared. awake. awake. Mm -hmm. But awake means prepared, right? That's us. Well, if, 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 if we are awake, then he's talking to us. If we're believers, and if we're following. <laughs> <laughs> you you got to decide, is he talking to us? That's all, each of us have got to answer that question. All right. If we're awake, we're going to keep our garments that may not go naked. In other words, if you're deceived or if you're sleeping, you might actually be exposing yourself to shame, going around naked, the idea of shame being exposed. But if you are awake, you're clothed, you're ready. Okay. And who here? is actually being deceived. Who's asleep? Who's not aware of what's going on? The demons and the non-believers. Right? So the demons went out, and who did they? The kings. So the kings of the whole world have been deceived by these uh, foul spirits who went abroad to the kings of the whole world, to do what? To assemble them for battle. Now, you assemble for battle not when you think you're going to lose. You go to battle when you think you're going to win. So here they are thinking, we're powerful. We're going to win. Whether you're talking about the ones east of the Euphrates or Rome, who was west of the Euphrates, and they're all coming together, and they all think, ah, oh, we're going to win. You can see the armies, ah, oh, they're cheering and they're yelling. All the while, they've been deceived. They're brought together by the demons. That's you're going to solve this in four seconds. And they assemble them at the place which is called Hebrew Armageddon. And people, you could go through and you could find, I don't know how many dozens of books on where this is and who's coming. And all right. Anybody know any of the commentary what the word Armageddon means? The hill of Megiddo. I don't know. That's what's in my, I don't know what that is. Megiddo or Megiddo. The nearest hill. Um, it says it's Mount Carmel, where Elijah confronted Baal. Okay, so re read that nice again, nice for uh, reading it nice and loud. Okay. Baal was another god, wasn't he? Hmm. Yeah, the word is found only here in Scripture. Means the hill of Megiddo. The nearest hill to Megiddo is Mount Carmel, where Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal. Okay, do you remember that story? So the prophets of Baal, this false god, and Elijah challenges them to a, a competition, right? And what's the competition? Who's the real god? All right, and so all the prophets of Baal get together and they build their offering and they're calling down on their god and the question was, who is going to light the fire of the sacrifice? He's going to build an altar, put the sacrifice on it, okay? They try and they try and they try. What do they do? So, Deacon, remember this? Yes, I remember it very well. I've been on Mount Carmel. So uh, tell, us, tell us about it. Well, uh, the several interesting things to me, I'll summarize it very quickly, is the fact that 
all of Israel was gathered at the foot of Mount Carmel to witness the demonstration of who really was God. And of course, remember the 450 prophets of Baal were doing everything that their religion required of them, even to this point of cutting themselves and shedding blood to try to get their deity to respond by consuming the altar with fire. And nothing happened. And then, of course, Elijah had them douse the altar with water to the fact that it not only soaked all the wood and everything on it, which would make it less likely to burn, but there were trenches around the altar that were filled with water as well. And then when he called on God, the fire fell from heaven, consumed not only the sacrifice on the altar, the wood on the altar, the stones and all the water that was in the trenches. And, and so it was very obvious whose God was God. It was the God of Israel. And uh, if you've ever been to Mount Carmel, it is a steep mountain and the people gathered in the plains of Jezreel down at the bottom of, of the mountain could have seen and heard everything that was going on up there on that mountain. And then of course, uh, because God said, these blasphemers must be judged, the 450 prophets of Baal were killed. Okay. Because they were deceiving the nation of Israel with their false deity. And the word Amargeddon is translated as cut up. Cut up. Uh, where did I find this? Cutting or cut up. Um, where is it here? Yes, Elijah hacked them to pieces. So you take that Old Testament uh, incident that the subdeacon just described beautifully, you know, comprehensively. Here you have all the nations of the world coming together to fight this battle, and yet they're going to be cut up. Like the prophets of Baal in the Old Testament, they've come against God, thinking that they have the power even to, to take over, and they're going to be cut up. Now, there's one other way to understand this, which I think is interesting. I'm going to read this to you. Um, the waters dried up to prepare the way for the coming king from the east, that is, for Christ. Who's concerning whom we read, behold, a man who's coming, whose name is East. We hear this on, uh, on Nativity. Um, we call him uh, the dawn of day from on high or from the East, whose orient is his name. For him who is coming is away, coming away is prepared so that he might judge. Moreover, in the name of, the, of a river, Euphrates, as in the sea, the rivers, the springs of water, the sun and the thrones of the beast, over all of which the angels had to have poured out their bowls, these people who are impure are indicated, and its waters are made dry, it says. So that this is a different idea of, of another same meaning, but a whole different way of getting to it, that it's this king from the east is actually Christ coming in to crush these earthly powers. Well, that's not what they're referring to in chapter in verse 12, is it? It's just a different interpretation of that. Yeah. So instead of saying that it's actually the, this, the nations of the East, that this uh, 
commentator, Primasius, is saying this is Christ coming from the East. So whether you interpret it as one way or the other, it's actually the same meaning. That, that they're going to come, the nations will be assembled because they were deceived, and they're going to be cut up. Okay, so verse 12 there, it is Christ coming? Is That's one Christ? interpretation, yeah. Okay. Hmm. Okay. I thought there were the evil kingdoms. Yeah, that's that's the other interpretation. <laughs> Which one is? <laughs> well, here's the great thing about it. Does it matter? <laughs> Whether it's referring to the kings of the east, or evil, or Christ, or Christ who comes from the east, the results are the same. The results are the same. God's Armageddon. <laughs> Father, Father yeah. Verse fifteen. You know. It says, behold, I am coming as a thief. So it could be both and, because both right. of them are going to be happy. Yep. Say that last part, you cut off a second. Oh, I just said that it's, it's both things are going to be happening. You know, obviously the kings are coming and the false prophet, you know, the, the evil is going to be revealed. But verse 15 basically says, behold, I am coming. So, you know, we do know that he comes from the east. <laughs> so it's, it's a way of just revealing, I think, that both are true. Yeah. And ultimately, it's the same, even though it's a different way of looking at it, the meaning ends up being the same. And that's what we said from the beginning, that Revelation, being as cryptic as it sometimes is, we can't always say this is this. But if you look at it, even from all the different angles, then it's not unclear what the message is. And the message is, just as it was in the Old Testament, the powers of the earth, of false power, of false gods, is nothing compared to the power of God. And so, again, the question is going to be, on whose side do we want to be? So I'm going to, I'm going to close. I'm going to a few minutes late, but I'm going to close with this because it really makes it clear. To be awake and to keep one's garments means to remain vigilant and always concerned with good works. For good works are the garments of the saints. And were one to be without these, one would necessarily be made ashamed as one naked and full of shamefulness. We are taught in this passage that this is a terrible thing, to be naked of the garments of virtue. And we have learned from the gospel parable that he who is without this is thrown out of the bridal chamber. We have learned from the apostolic saying that, the, that speaks of incorruptibility, quote, that putting this on, we shall not be found naked. That is clearly of good works. Therefore, let us earnestly beseech the Lord that he wash the robes of our souls so that as the word of the Psalm says, they may be made whiter than snow. Lest we hear, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And having our hands and feet bound, be cast into the outer darkness. The idea is let us be awake, let us be clothed with what? With good works. That's what indicates who we are loyal to, whose side we're on. Is not who we say we are. Christ always said you look at the fruits, you look at the results. Talk is cheap. All right, any quick questions before we close off for the day? 
All right. We will not have Bible study for the next, I believe, two weeks. I am gone. Was it the next two weeks or one week? Let me look. Um, yeah, no Bible study on the, on the, oh, sorry. None on the first. We're going back to Thursdays. So none on the first and none on the eighth. Well, tomorrow doesn't really count because we already had it this week. Oh, sorry. You're right. I have, a, I have trouble flipping month to month. So actually, next week is the 8th, correct? Right. Okay. So there's no Bible study on the 8th, and there's no Bible study on the 15th. But then we'll pick up on the 22nd. Yeah, we'll go back to Thursdays. We made ways for the... Blessed are the cheese bread makers. <laughs> and now their work is done, and we're going to reclaim Thursdays. Where are you going? Um, a couple of things. I'm going to take my son on a little trip, get some driving practice in for him, and driving. And then Vicky going away for a couple of days for her birthday. And I'm going to take a couple of day bike riding trip. Nice. I'm going to ride the right plane for you. Where you're staying. Uh, we might. We, uh, Josh hasn't decided. Said so you got to pick where where you want to drive to. We're gonna go away for a couple of days and drive, drive, drive. Good to see you all. Thank you. Have a great day. Stay well. You too.